submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Hey guys, welcome to the teaching this uh, weekend. Glad you're joining us. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. If I've never met you, love to meet you. Uh, so you can send an email, let us know you're watching, listening online. Uh, if you don't have a church home, love for you to come and make this your church home. 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock, 5.30. Love to meet you. Come and join us. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Ephesians 5. We've been in this series and uh, uh, this series uh, that we've been in, the book of Ephesians, we said it can be split into two parts. First part of Ephesians talks about the blessings we have in Christ. And then the second part talks about how that looks on the ground. So it talks about all the things we have in Christ, and then it's like, here's the response. Here's how it shows up in your life. And so today, we find ourselves in the second part, right? And we're in chapter 5, and we're going to look at how this all shows up in our marriages. So some of you are single watching this, and uh, so glad you're watching. I would stay tuned. You're like, I don't know, uh, because I so desperately want you to see what God has to say about marriage. Some of you are married, and uh, I want you to stay tuned, right? Maybe for some of you, it's like, hey, this would be a good chance for us to refine and to lean in and to address some things in our marriage. Some of you are in hard marriages. I want you to stay tuned. Uh, we actually are going to add a podcast later this week that's going to address some of these things in fuller fashion. Uh, some of you have gone through the pains of divorce, and, and my heart goes out to you, and I want you to stay tuned. Like, I think there's some really, really positive things in this teaching. And then some of you are just exploring. You're like, I'm not even a Christ follower. Just exploring this thing. And, and I want to say to you, thanks for entrusting us with the opportunity to have this conversation with you as we look at what God has to say about marriage. You may not agree with everything the Bible says or I have to say, but I hope you'll stay tuned and hope you'll consider what God has to say in his picture of marriage. Uh, as we do this kind of conversation together about marriage, I was thinking about puzzle. I don't necessarily like putting puzzles together, but I don't know if you have any puzzles in a plastic bag uh, in your house. Uh, when you think about a puzzle in a plastic bag, it's got all these pieces, right? And you kind of dump the pieces out on the table, and then you start little by little trying to put the puzzle together. Uh, the problem is this, that a puzzle in a plastic bag is very frustrating, isn't it? It's very frustrating because there's no picture, like, like I begin putting this thing together and I'm not sure what I'm putting together. And so I begin just trying to fit pieces together, hoping that somehow, some way, a picture emerges. And this is a very frustrating process. I think this is how a lot of people feel about marriage. Uh, it's kind of like we dump all the pieces on the table and then we try to figure out how to put together a picture that looks like a happy marriage. 
I actually think this is what might explain why our culture has what I would say a complex relationship with marriage. The truth is, maybe you feel this way, I don't know. There's a lot of cynicism, sarcasm about marriage. And I think it's kind of combined with this hint of hope. Like people want it to work. This this hint of desire. Uh, man, I desire to be married, but there's cynicism and there's sarcasm. Everybody knows the statistics. Marriage, I looked this up. The marriage rate has dropped to a 50-year low, continues to decline. Most people are opting for cohabitation instead of marriage. U.S. is sixth in the world when it comes to divorce. Average duration of a marriage in the United States, eight years. Uh, what it's saying is majority of people in the United States get married as adults. And the majority of people say, I do, and many of them end up saying, I don't. <laughs> That's fascinating. It's understandable that people are skeptical. Maybe you're skeptical of marriage. Maybe you're cynical about it. Uh, and it's understandable. I mean, the fear is palpable in our culture. Some people demonize it, avoid it altogether. Uh, there, are, there are some people who try to foolproof it uh, with prenuptial agreements. I read of this one uh, couple. Uh, they decided to have prenuptial agreements. And one of his was this, uh, that he was only allowed to watch one football game per weekend. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and, and then so he said, well, if that's one of mine, then here's one for you. Uh, there will be no mother-in-law sleepovers. <laughs> you know, we just, I mean, it's just crazy stuff. We try to foolproof marriage. Now, others of us, if we're honest, we don't demonize marriage. Maybe this is you. We idolize it. We're like, it's, it's, everything's going to be great once I get married. And we become frustrated until we get married. And then what happens is we get married and we get frustrated because our picture of the ideal, what we idolized, our ideal, doesn't look very much like the real one that we find ourselves in. It kind of begs the question, what's the problem? Well, the problem is, for some of us, we're trying to put together a puzzle and, and we don't have a picture. And we're like, I'm not sure what I'm trying to put together. Uh, maybe worse than that, some of us are trying to put this puzzle together. Imagine putting this puzzle together. And we have the wrong picture. And so what we're trying to do is force pieces where they uh, don't fit and all of a sudden trying to make a picture that isn't even the picture the puzzle's meant to put together. Uh, our culture gives us all kinds of pictures when it comes to marriage. Uh, there's the eHarmony Christian Mingle picture. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Some of you met online. But, but what happens here is the, the idea is the key to the perfect marriage is finding the perfect person, Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And once I find my soulmate, I find the right one, the person who completes me, right? Some of you understand what I'm saying. And so that's all great until Mr. Wright becomes the one who does the wrong stuff. And all of a sudden, the one who completes me feels like they're competing with me. And what happens is you begin to think to yourself, maybe I married the wrong one, not the right one. Uh, or, or, you know, I would say maybe Hollywood sells us a different picture, this romantic movie picture where the climax, there's always this tension, there's always this uh, plot line that's being played out. The climax uh, is this romance that kind of blossoms. Everything else is pointing to it. Everything else re results from it. But that's the climax. And it's like, and then you get married and you're like, I, that, that's a part of it, but man, those pieces aren't the whole puzzle. And then there's this idea in our culture of the me marriage picture, and maybe you understand that. Uh, New York Times, or New York Post actually did a, an article on this. Uh, it talks about marriage being committed to mutually benefiting each other. 
Here's the problem with that. The moment that I feel, it feels like I'm giving more than I'm benefiting, the marriage breaks down. Like some of you understand this, right? Maybe that's what's going on in your marriage. For some of us, our picture of marriage is skewed. It's wrong. It's been influenced by what we've seen. For some of you, you've seen good marriages, and so that's good, right? But others of you have seen bad marriages. But you know, all of us have at minimum seen imperfect marriages, What we need is a better picture of marriage, better than our culture offers, better than even the people we've seen, whether good or bad or indifferent offer, uh, better than our family has offered, better than Hollywood offers. I believe that's what we find in Ephesians is a better picture. That better picture starts this way, or it's actually in the middle of this picture. Kimmy read for us, verse 31. Interesting, I want you to remember this. For this reason, he's quoting a passage, an ancient passage of scripture about 1,400 years before Paul wrote this. He's quoting Genesis. And he's saying, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. What Paul is saying is this, not all new ideas are the best ideas. And actually, when it comes to marriage, maybe the best idea, maybe the most ideal idea is the old original idea, which was God's idea. I think what he's saying, there's no slide for this, but that marriage is rooted in creation. Now, some of you are just exploring this whole God thing and Jesus thing, and I get that. But I'd love for you to consider something today. Would you consider this with me today? If we are created by God, let's just assume that's true for a second. I believe that's true, but, but some of you are exploring. And if marriage is and was his idea, so if we're created by God, marriage was his idea, then at least this conclusion, we'll always find ourselves frustrated trying to piece together our marriages with any other picture other than the one he designed and the one he dreamed up. Paul is saying that marriage is rooted in creation. That's not all he's saying. He's saying this is a profound mystery for, for, for most of us. We just said, that's it. <laughs> that's marriage in a nutshell. It's a, literally the words in Greek, this is interesting. It's, it's a mega mystery. Uh, how many of you believe that, right? Some of you are married like, man, that's it in a nutshell. Marriage is a mega mystery. But he says, no, the word mystery isn't like, I can't figure this out. It's an unsolved mystery. It's something that's being revealed. And he reveals to us the secret that I'm talking about Christ and the church, that it's a mystery that's uncovered. God's picture of marriage is rooted in creation. I want you to remember this, but it's revealed in the gospel. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman rooted in creation that is meant to be a picture of the gospel. If you're taking notes, you ought to write it down this way. The gospel is God's picture for marriage. This picture for marriage is the picture of Jesus and his relationship to the church, it will be, become the essence of marriage. It becomes the purpose of marriage. It changes the experience and expectation of marriage. It's only when you begin to uncover this that you understand the purpose of marriage. You put it in its right place. And I think when you begin to realize this, all of a sudden it takes away the need to demonize marriage, but it also keeps you from idolizing marriage. I think in our culture, a lot of Christians do this. They idolize marriage. Marriage is going to solve everything. Marriage is the pinnacle. And it's not. Some of you are single. You need to know something, that marriage has a purpose, and the purpose is to paint a picture of the gospel. And then the gospel becomes the picture for power for marriage. 
here's where we need a little realignment, if you ask me. If I'm reading my Bible right, and you're a follower of Christ, let's just say that for the assumption. Some of you I know are exploring, and I'm so glad. Stay with me on this. But if I'm reading this right, then our marriages as followers of Christ is the greatest opportunity to paint a clear, up-close, and personal picture of the gospel for our children, for our friends, for our neighbors, for the world. And, 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 and if that is true, then we probably got to say, uh-oh. <laughs> because divorce rate is the same for Christians and non-Christians. So what do we need? More seminars? No. More conferences? Heavens no. More books? No. We need a deeper, more profound understanding of the gospel if it's the picture. That's the picture we're to be painting with our marriages. That's how we put this mega mystery puzzle together. In Ephesians 5, there's three pieces to this puzzle. If you're taking notes, I want you to write some of these down. The first one's found in this passage, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want you to write it this way. The first piece of the puzzle is an attitude of submission. It's an attitude of submission. Now, this flies right in the face of our culture, doesn't it? Submission isn't necessarily a word we enjoy. Uh, we use phrases like this, express yourself, be true to yourself, do what makes you happy, demand your rights. As I said before, some of you are just exploring this whole Christianity thing, this whole God thing, this whole Jesus thing. Can I ask you just to entertain a question? Just to entertain it. What if we are really not the best person to run our lives? What if we're really not the best ones to create the pattern for marriage in our lives? Some of you watching this are followers of Christ. And I was down in Atlanta this last weekend, and the pastor there, Pastor David Black, shared this. He said, for those of us who are followers of Christ, the fact of the matter is we're called to submit, submit to Christ, submit to the governing authorities. And this idea of expressing ourselves, which our culture would say is the number one value, is not equal to becoming like Jesus, which for the follower of Christ is the number one desire. So what does it mean to submit? Well, the word, you can write this down if you like this kind of stuff, is hupotasso. It literally was had a military flavor to it. It means to rank yourself under, to set yourself under. Uh, it's this instinct of humility, that's a part of it, that willingly, willingly puts my needs under your needs, puts my preferences under your preferences, puts myself underneath yourself. Uh, let's talk about it in marriage. Let's just talk about it. Submission, leveraging my life for the benefit of my spouse. Can we just say it that way? Like I'm going to leverage my life for the benefit of my spouse. Now, about half of you listening to this right now, you're kind of bracing yourself because you've already read ahead, right? And, and you're like, I know who this tells to submit. It's going to say, wives, submit. And you're like, oh, man. In fact, it's why you hate the whole idea of marriage as it's taught in the Bible. Some of you hate it. But the truth is, I want to point you back to the verse that precedes that verse. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All y'all, submit to one another. Now, that's interesting to me because it's talking to all of us, husbands and wives. So the passage then 
goes from verse 21 and begins to unwrap, listen close, the roles that God designed and desires for us to play in marriage and how these roles, your role as a husband, your role as a wife, is a gift from God for the benefit of your spouse. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Let's, let's start with the husband, since in the passage, Ephesians 5, there is literally about three times more material for you husbands than there is for the wives. Here's what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. What is he saying here? Let's just say it, okay? He's saying God's design and desire is that a husband take the role of head or leader. Now, if you're watching this with your wife, and some of you husbands may be elbowing your wife, stop it. And some of you wives right now are like, can we turn this bald guy off? I'm done listening to him. Don't. Uh, some of you are watching this and you're saying, that's exactly what's wrong with our society. It's a male-dominated, misogynistic culture, and that is perpetuated by religion just like this. And, and listen to me. Stay with me. Some of you, you're like, I'm not even Christ follower, and I'm telling you that's what's wrong. And, and there's a part of me that I would agree with part of what you're saying, what I think you might be saying. Like, I actually would agree with that. That this concept, I believe, has been abused, has been manipulated, has been misused, and many husbands have used it to abuse their wives in their marriage. Some of you watching this have experienced that. And I just want to say this to you today. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I think the abuses are because we have not looked deep enough into what God is saying here. We've not stared at the picture long enough. Look what he says. He doesn't simply say husbands are the head, but that they are the head of their wife, just as what? You got to read the qualifier. Just as what? Just as Christ is the head of the church. Guys, that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. How is this role a gift to my wife? How is me being the head in our home a gift to Jennifer? Well, he says this, it's because the essence of my role as husband and head is wrapped up in this word. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So what does it look like for me to lead like Christ, to love like Christ, to be the head well, there's many things, and I just want to, there's many things, but three things stood out to me in this passage. Three things stood out to me in this passage. I want you to write them down. First is this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and read this next part out loud with me, and what? Gave himself up for her. Gave himself, Christ gave himself up for the church. Jesus died, leveraged his life, for my sake. If you're taking notes, I'd write it down this way. The first thing it means, husbands, is this. It means a sacrificial love that will lay down my life for my wife's sake. When I'm loving my wife like Jesus, I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of my wife. Lay down my life. Now, here's what I hear. Here's what I know. Some of you are, are saying this, and I've heard this actually in my office. I'd take a bullet for my wife, and that's awesome. I'd stand in front of a moving car for my wife. That's awesome. I'd take a bullet for my wife is a great philosophy. But till that moment comes when you have to take a bullet for your wife, that may have to happen. I think what he might be saying is, why don't you start by taking the trash out for your wife? 
I think what he's saying is, why don't you start by sacrificing your time and energy so you might listen to your wife and hear about her day? I think what he might be saying is that that it's a love that's willing to sacrifice my agenda, my priority, maybe even my hobbies for the sake of my wife and the relationship with my wife. What he's saying is, for me as a husband to submit myself, it shows up in a sacrificing love, a love that sacrifices for my wife's benefit. Uh, That's not all he says. He says to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What does it look for us to lead like Christ? Well, certainly it's a sacrificial love, but I think it looks like this. It's a gentle care that is committed to my wife's flourishing. That's interesting to me. I I think it's this gentle care that desires for my wife to flourish. Uh, Another word that is used in that passage is sanctifying love. We don't use that word much. Sweetheart, I love you in a sanctifying way. That word means to set apart. Uh, I I love the the imagery. It's it's like I'm going to love her in a way that cultivates an environment where my wife has the opportunity to thrive and flourish. I want to create this, gently create this environment where she can thrive intellectually, where she can thrive socially, where she can thrive relationally, where she can thrive emotionally. And what would that mean to create the environment for where my wife could begin to thrive emotionally? Well, it's going to begin by me being allowing her to share her emotions and not always saying, "What? I don't understand why you feel that way. I don't understand why." I'm going to to gently create this where she can thrive physically and certainly spiritually. You know, some guys, I I think this to myself all the time. I I often, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says this is going to happen, but I often think of myself standing, holding Jennifer, that's my wife, holding her hand, standing before Jesus, and him asking me this question. It's always sobering for me to think about this. Is she any more in love with me, Dan, as a result of being married to you? Did you create the environment, the relationship, the, the circumstances where that love for Jesus had a chance to thrive? Like I honestly think that's what it means for us to leverage our leadership. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give myself for the sake of my wife. And I want to gently, gently care. Uh, he uses in this passage this, that Jesus washes her and cleanses her. And it's like, it's interesting to me right? He, he's not publicizing her faults. Uh, husbands, you're not talking, you know, my old lady. But, but there's this gentle care that's committed to, I want her to flourish, to blossom. It's interesting. Uh, he goes on to say this, in the same way, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body. They feed it, care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his bodies. It's interesting. He's saying, I want husbands to love their wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Verse 33. What's interesting to me is that I think this is pointing to a kind and humble leadership that focuses on my wife's needs. He's saying, I'm going to focus on her needs. I'm going to accept my role as leader and selflessly, humbly, with kind kindness in my heart, focus on 
my attention to her needs. I'm going to kindly serve her. I'm going to kindly ask her how I can be helpful to her. What a beautiful picture. Listen, even if you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus, isn't it beautiful when you see a leader who serves? You see, that's the kind of leader he's calling us husbands to be. For those of you who are followers, I would suggest that you cannot lead without serving. I think the whole idea of servant leadership is a misnomer. Like leadership is serving. In, 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 his, in Jesus' right side up kingdom, he says to serve is to lead, to lead is to serve. Jesus, when he came, he turned everything upside down. And it was the power of leadership that showed up in servanthood. And the power of love was found in sacrifice. And I think he's saying that that's the power of you, husband, leveraging your role as head as a gift for the sake of your wife. You see, it's not something that you hold over her. It's something that you leverage for her benefit. You see, there's a pastor in Texas who said something, Tony Evans, if you heard him speak, he's very passionate. He says, as, as goes the man, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the community. As communities go, so goes the nation. Therefore, he says, if you want to change the nation, some of you are like, I'm going to change the nation. Change your community. If you want to change your community, change your church. And if you want to change the church, change the family. And that begins with you, husbands. To leverage your role as a gift for the benefit of your wife. Uh, what does that look like for wives? Well, this ought to be fun, right? This is what you were waiting for, I know. Wives, here we go. Submit yourselves, there's our word, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. If you're a husband and you're really and you're watching this and you're with your wife and you're really, really glad your wife is sitting beside you to hear this, you probably don't understand it, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying, like, you're like, wives, this is the passage that sometimes you wish you could cut out because it's been abused. Many of us would believe this is the problem with marriage. Overbearing, angry, dominating men. This just gives them license to be dominating, license to be angry. Yet don't forget, we talked about a totally different kind of guy, didn't we? Can we start with what this does not mean? This does not mean male domination. It doesn't mean subjugation, oppression. Listen, if you're the guy who goes home and the only, maybe you've been listening to us for a year and this is the only time all year where you're going to say, hey, I really like Pastor Dan's sermon, you probably don't understand this. There are a lot of guys who abuse this passage. Men who feel this is now their opportunity and license to demand this of their wife. Submit to me. And if you're one of those guys, I, have no, I don't know what else to say to you than other than that is sinful and wrong. I, I was asked by a guy one time, do you tell your wife to submit to you? I'm like, no. I'm never told to. Look back at the passage. That This passage, guys, isn't addressed to you. It's addressed to wives. Stay out of her neighborhood. <laughs> you have plenty of things that are addressed to you in here. This is addressed to wives, and it's addressed, and you can forget this, but it's interesting to me, the middle voice, which means this, the subject is not forced by someone else. 
He's saying, wives, I want you to willingly do this. It's not male domination. It's not male superiority. It's not men are superior, women are inferior. Look what he says. Wives, dress the wives, submit yourselves to what? To men? That's what it says. To your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Doesn't say to men. Doesn't mean that men are smarter. Doesn't mean that men are wiser. Doesn't mean that they're better leaders all the time. Role does not equal value. Our roles in marriage are God-given gifts for the flourishing of marriage and for the purpose of painting a picture of the gospel. In the culture in which Paul is writing this book of Ephesians, in Roman culture, women were second-class, they weren't even second-class citizens. They were invisible. They had no rights. Sometimes they were placed on the same level as a child. Even in the Jewish culture, which had a higher view of marriage, uh, men could divorce their wives for little or no reason, and women had no recourse. Women were seen as inferior. When Jesus comes on the scene, he elevates women. Uh, women were part of the ministry of Jesus. They followed Jesus. They were last at the cross, first at the tomb. Jesus raised and dignified the role of women. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians, when he tells men, to care for, humbly, gently care for the flourishing of women, to be kind and selfless in the way they lead women, it would have been totally countercultural. You see, this passage is not about male superiority. And it's not about blind obedience. What happens if what my husband is doing or encouraging us to do as a couple is in total disregard and disobedience to God? Well, Scripture is plain that I obey God rather than men. For some of you, this does not mean that you have to tolerate abuse. Uh, for many of you, this does not mean that you need to disobey God. This is not what that means. So what does it mean? Well, it may be a good way to put it as this. Submission is a wife's willing recognition and response to her husband's God-given role as leader, and it's a desire to accept her role as a gift from God for his benefit and the purpose of painting a picture of the gospel in their marriage. Remember the picture we're painting with the gospel, with, with marriage is the gospel. In this picture of the gospel, wives play the part of the church. It might be helpful to go back to God's original design. Let's just look at this for a second. Adam first saw no suitable it's an interesting word, helper. Circle that. Keep that in your mind. The word, the Hebrew word is ezer, uh, was found. Uh, that word is not like, hey, you're my little helper. God uses that word to describe himself in the Old Testament. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then he made woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. Man said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she'll be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You see, here's what I see. Wives, God, when he designed this, he saw that Adam had no suitable easer, helper. Right? Now, that's easy to hear. First, Paul says, submit. Now you're saying God created me to be a helper? Well, I think that word in our culture just is so God refers to himself that way. 
think what he's saying here is this. He's saying, submit to your husbands, leverage your life for their benefit, allow him to lead, encourage him in his leadership, not because you're less, not because you're less equal, not because you're less qualified, but I want you as a suitable helper to come alongside because that is the role that God has given you as a gift for the benefit of your spouse, for sure, and for the purpose of painting a picture of the gospel. So how's that look? Can I give you three suggestions? I gotta be somewhat quick about these. Three suggestions. First, anchor your life in the abiding presence of Jesus. Jesus said this, abide in me, you can't produce fruit, you're, you're right, apart from me. Vine in the branches. First Peter 3 gives this picture of a what is beautiful in God's eyes is a gentle and quiet spirit in wives. Now listen, stay with me. I don't think he's talking about a mousy, meek, I never say anything. I think he's talking about somebody whose heart is quieted and settled because it's anchored in the presence and promises of Jesus. Wives, if you want to leverage your life for the sake of your husband, anchor your life in the abiding presence of Jesus. Find your security, your identity there. Listen, listen close. Find your satisfaction in Christ. A woman who does this will not expect her husband to fulfill needs. He cannot. He's not made to bear. It's a weight he cannot bear. Start by anchoring your life in the abiding presence of Jesus. A woman who does this will pray for her husband to live into his calling and role in their marriage will trust God with that. I really believe that. That's just a powerful, beautiful thing to do regardless, if you're a wife or not. How about this? Encourage and inspire him to live into God's calling for his life. Encourage and inspire him. Ephesians 4.29, did you peek back over there in your Bibles? It says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, only that which is beneficial for the building up the caring for the needs of those who are listening to you. I'm going to tell you, you wives something. Your words are incredibly powerful in your husband's life. They just are. You just need to know that. In fact, Proverbs points this out, right, in a negative way. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. You know, it's, Guys, it's just better to hang out on the rooftop. And then he goes on the same chapter. He says, and if, if it gets that bad, it's better to live in a desert then to live with a quarrelsome, and she keeps nagging you. She won't stop. Negative, we have fun with that. I think what he's saying, wives, don't... Okay, we're going to have fun with that. We're going to smile, and then we're going to say this. Your words matter. Like, y'all could say encouraging things to me, but when my wife... Last night, my wife, for no particular reason, she, she just stopped in the middle of something we we're doing, and she said something to me. She said, I really admire what I see in you, and she pointed out this thing. And I'm going to tell you something. I was getting ready to go to bed, and I'm like, man, I think I think I could take on the world. Like, she was calling out. She was inspiring me. Listen, gals, your words hold weight. Not just the particular words you use, but the timing and the tone of them. And I would say the way to help your wife is to... Uh, to anchor your life in the abiding presence of Jesus and then use your words, not as weapons to nag and to quarrel, but as words to inspire and encourage. And then, and, and then when he takes initiative, celebrate him. 
Because I'm going to tell you something. Most guys are afraid of failing. Most guys struggle with this, with leading in their marriage. Most guys do. Just going to be honest with you. And so when he takes the initiative, uh, when you see him stepping to the plate, he's going to swing and miss sometimes. He's going to, he, he's going to take the initiative sometimes. And he'll be like, well, that's not the way I would do it. Celebrate him. I have so many guys come into my house and say, I just can't do anything right. I, can't, I never do anything right. Catch him doing stuff that's right. To catch him taking initiative. What's this look like? Just look at this picture with me. This is a man who's the head, the woman who's the helper. He's leading like Christ. She's helping easer like God describes himself. So what he's doing is he's leveraging his life for the sake of his wife through sacrificial love, humble, kind leadership, gentle care, not gentle ear, gentle care. <laughs> and then she's leveraging her life it's a role given to her to lift up, to celebrate, encourage, live in the abiding presence of Jesus, praying for her husband. And when this starts spinning, guess what happens? Two become one. And all of a sudden, it looks like something you're going to wear on your finger, right? That looks just like my ring. And all of a sudden, it looks like the first letter in what happens. Two becoming O-N-E, one. And maybe God's picture for marriage is two becoming one. And we know that's the case, don't we? You see, so even if you're exploring, you're like, I'm not even a Christian. It, what, wouldn't that be beautiful? I, I, I will tell you, so many of you need to know. I, I, I meet with so many people in my office, and they long for this. I, I, I've yet to meet the gal who said, well, man, I, I wouldn't want, want a guy like that. And a guy who wouldn't want a gal like that. I think what's interesting is the second piece of the puzzle is important because it says submit to one another. It's, a, it's an attitude of submission, but it says out of reverence for Christ. Here's the second piece of the puzzle. It's a posture of worship. It's a posture of worship. Here's the key. Our marriages are an act of worship to God. They're an act of worship to God. Uh, this will change the experience of marriage. This means our, our actions in marriage are expressions that aren't reacting to our spouse, they're responding to what we receive from God. Let me give you two real quick examples. So out of reverence to Christ, I'm going to submit. Uh, let me give you two examples. One is, in marriage, you will have the privilege to forgive each other. Amen, if you're married? Yeah. When you get married, you're marrying a sinner. Here's something I say at many wedding days. I say this all the time. You will always lose when you keep score. In marriage, you will always lose. You forfeit what matters most when you keep score. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, uh, Love is not easily angered, and love keeps no record of wrongs. For your marriage to be a demonstration of sacrificial love means you will need to forgive, not because you feel like it. You ain't always going to feel like it. Not because they deserve it. Forgiveness by its very definition is giving to someone what they don't deserve. But to forgive because you've been forgiven. Which is what Ephesians is teaching. If, see how it flows into our marriage? Be kind and compassionate to one another. So just to be kind and compassionate to your wife. Be kind and compassionate to your husband. Forgiving your wife. Forgiving your husband just as in Christ God forgave you. 
In our marriages, we're tempted to hold on to hurts, even use them for future arguments as leverage. And what happens is, in so doing, we kill our marriages. They die this slow death of resentment and bitterness. I think what he's saying is don't try to settle the score, but remember that what Ephesians 2 teaches, it is by grace you were saved, that what you received from God is grace in Christ. So don't try to settle your score, but remember the score was settled at the cross. Now you can extend forgiveness. You know why? Because you've been forgiven. The gospel drives us. Our marriages become this picture of the gospel. How, How about this? Marriage is an opportunity to serve each other. But you don't serve each other just when you feel like it because you ain't always going to feel like it. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You don't just serve each other because the other person deserves that you serve them. They don't always deserve it. And you don't serve each other, stay with me on this, so that down the road they might serve you. That's going to be an expectation that's a premeditated disappointment. Are you tracking with me? Well, then why would we serve each other? Because the gospel says that we have a God who became man. He took on the form of a man, became a servant. That we have a God who served us. We will never be able to outserve him. And so serving Jennifer becomes an, an, an extension, an expression of my worship to God, the God who served me. And so I'm serving her out of experiencing what it means for me to be served by the kindness of God in Christ. See, my marriage, the essence of my marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's the flavor of my marriage. It's the engine that drives my marriage. One more thing, and we got to be done. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be, there's the word, united. That word literally means to be glued, joined together. Uh, You ever hear this? Leave and cleave. That's what the word means, right? The two become one flesh. Profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's, It's a word picture that denotes a legal, binding, exclusive, personal promise. It leads to the third piece to the puzzle. Third piece to the puzzle, an attitude of submission, right? a posture of worship, and then a promise of future love. The picture of marriage is the gospel. The essence of the picture is this covenant relationship we have with God in Christ. The essence of marriage is a covenant. It's a commitment. It's not a contract with escape clauses. It's not a consumer transaction. You get this, I get this. It's not simply about chemistry. I fell in love, so therefore I fell out of love. But it's a commitment. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way. I love this in his book that you're making a promise of future love, you're not simply declaring your present feelings. The day you exchange vows, you're not simply saying how you feel about each other that day. But it's a promise of future love. And when you make that promise of future love, you're saying this, I promise to love you enough to close off all the other options. Marriage is a unique friendship that has exclusive benefits. It's saying I'll keep myself to you and for you as long as we both shall live. I promise to pursue you Protect our covenant exclusively. I'm saying yes to you and no to everybody else. You're saying this. It's a promise to love you enough to rearrange my life for you. Sometimes, guys, the way we look at marriage is dating is kind of the hunt 
And when we get married, it's like we got the trophy and then we're done. The pursuit is over. The hunt is over. That's not marriage. I'm promising to pursue you, to love you, to romance you. You're saying, I promise that I'll stay to work it out instead of running out. That in the context of a covenant commitment, conflict is not a bad thing. It can be a refining thing. I've come to believe that most marriages end too quickly. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller states this, and I quote, he reveals a study that says two-thirds of unhappy marriages eventually became happy within five years if they stayed together. What was it that kept them together? It was the vow, the covenant. And, And then you're saying this, I promise that I'll keep my appointment with you in the unpredictable future that we're running into. I'm going to be there, rich, poor, sickness, health, whether things are good or not. I'm always fascinated. Uh, Kids had these incredible definitions of love. Carl at age five said, uh, love is when a girl puts on perfume, a guy puts on shaving cologne, and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) That's kind of cool. This gal said this, love is, is the stuff on Valentine's Day cards that you would like to say, but you wouldn't be caught dead saying them. That's interesting. Uh, But I like what Rebecca said. Love is when Grandma got arthritis and she couldn't bend down to paint her toenails anymore. So Grandpa paints her toenails for her even after his hands got arthritis too. Or I like what Jake said. Love is when the little old man and a little old woman are still friends after they know each other so well for so long. Think about it, guys. It's a game team changer. It's only in the security of this promise of future love that you'll ever experience true intimacy, which is what Tim Keller says in his book. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst, knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it's a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved, that's everybody's greatest fear. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need. More than anything, it liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, fortifies us for any difficulty life might throw at us. You see, he says this, that marriage is this puzzle. But he said, here's the picture on the box. It's the gospel. And he said, this attitude of submission, this posture of worship, and this promise of future love come together. And they paint this beautiful picture of Jesus' relationship with the church the gospel some of you are just exploring this this whole god thing and i want you to know there's a god who loves you he loves you so much that jesus came took on the form of a man became a servant humbled himself to death even death on a cross we have a god who submitted himself for your sake to take what you deserved and i deserved so that we could have what we could never gain on our own And that our life becomes this beautiful response. It's not about keeping the rules. It's about responding to the grace and the glory of all that God is and all that he does. And that God promises he'll never leave us nor forsake us. What if our marriages were a beautiful picture of that? What if your marriage was a beautiful picture of that? I know there are many questions. I hope you'll watch the podcast as we flesh this out more. Some of you are married. I pray that you'll sit with your spouse, grab her, his hand, and pray. And pray, God, would you make our marriage this beautiful picture of the gospel for our kids to see, 
for our neighbors to see, for the world to see. Would you help us? Some of you are single. You know my prayer for you? My prayer is you wouldn't idolize marriage. Everything's going to be better when I get married. You wouldn't demonize marriage. It's this beautiful thing that God created. But that you'll look for someone with whom you can paint a picture of the gospel. My prayer is this, is that our world would see in our marriages this picture of a God who loves us, who gave himself for us, and the church's response to that. Will you pray with me? God, I pray for marriages watching this right now. God, I pray that you would help us to lean in, to paint and put together a different picture than we've seen. God, that you would help us husbands lead as Christ, that you would help us, the wives listening, to be those who would help encourage and anchor our lives in the abiding presence of Jesus, to prayerfully inspire, to prayerfully celebrate. God, that we would submit to one another out of response to all that you've done for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.